Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. We get to look in today into a salvation salvation story and I always find those exciting to hear how somebody came to know the Lord. And um, I don't know if you knew this, but Miss Jeanette came to know Christ at a Billy Graham crusade back in the 50s. So she responded to the invitation, went forward and received Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, I wonder how many of you um, turned to Jesus as a result of a big crusade. Is there anybody here? Lift a hand. Okay. Hold it up. I I see two, three, three people. All right. How many at church you responded to the Lord at church? Okay, for the first time. All right, go ahead. All right. How many in a one-on-one conversation with somebody? Okay, some of you guys didn't vote. You know what that means. Today's the day. What's that? How many hit rock bottom? And That's right. All right. Or youth camp. Oh, hey, that's another one. Well, youth camp. How about youth camp? All right. All right. Good. Good. I hope that's everybody. If not, talk to me afterwards. I've got good news for you. We get to look into the salvation story. And uh, some things you should know, you don't have to know. You can um, benefit from this this text without knowing this. But one of the things you might want to know is that uh, Macedonia was a, Roman, um, was a Roman province in the north of what is now Greece. And uh, it's where Alexander the Great is from. See, you didn't have to know that to be spiritually edified this morning. Uh, and I was thinking about this when we were in Greece. It was about 45 miles from, from Thessalonica where uh, we visited a museum where they, they have the tomb of Alexander the Great's father. And a uh, really, really fascinating thing. But there's a lot of things that are really close together there. And one of the things that we, uh, we know from the book of Acts is that the gospel was successful in the province of Macedonia. And it was successful despite the fact that there was a lot of persecution that accompanied the preaching of the gospel. A lot of it came from Jewish quarters that, uh, and remember Paul's Jewish, so this is kind of a, a uh, internal religious conflict that was happening. And uh, there, was, there was some persecution that came from outside as well. But uh, you'll remember that in Philippi, in particular, one of the things that happened was uh, this little girl was following uh, Paul around, and she was she was possessed with a spirit of python, is what the Greek says, and she's a fortune-telling spirit. And finally, after a few days, Paul got irked. It says he got irked in his spirit, and he cast the demon out, and the people that had been using her to fortune-tell and gain profits lost their source of income, and so they, they wanted to throw Paul and his companions in the clink. Well, they they uh, worshipped in the midst of their difficulty, and, and God sent an earthquake, and it opened up the gates, and lots of people got saved as a result of it, and uh, they found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, and they didn't give him a trial. They just beat him. If you know the, a little bit of the background there, you know that you, if, you, if you were to um, beat a Roman citizen without trial, like flogging was a typical punishment that day, but if you did it without trial, then you got the same punishment yourself. So the city officials were in a hurry to get Paul out of town. And Paul said, no, I'm not going. 
if you want me to go, you need to come and parade me out and give some dignity to the message that I've preached. And so they did. They came in some kind of procession, and they took Paul out. But all that to say that it was not easy to be a Christian in the province of Macedonia, and yet God was opening hearts and changing lives. And I love that because sometimes we think that if all of the obstacles get moved out of the way, um, you know, Satan doesn't get up that morning and... um, you know, all of the difficulties of culture were to go away and it was just to be a smooth, easy ride, then we would all turn to Jesus with all of our hearts. And you know that there was a circumstance like that at one time, the Garden of Eden, and people turned away. Hmm. So the problem isn't environment, the problem is our hearts. And hearts in a wicked environment can still turn to Jesus. I hope you know that. And I hope that brings hope. I hope if you're a parent, that brings hope to your raising kids, that, that there's a way God can preserve innocence in a culture like ours. There's a way in which he can win people to Christ in a culture like ours. And we see that in this. I think in some ways, um, the, this Greek culture of Thessalonica is a little bit like the Greek, or not the Greek, but the culture that we live in, in which people have abandoned truth. They worship all kinds of other gods. And that, that happens, believe it or not, in our world. And, uh, and yet the gospel found a way in. And I hope you know that you don't have to be ashamed of the gospel in the marketplace of ideas because it will stand toe-to-toe with any other philosophy or religion and will win. Come on, it's true. So we can be confident in the gospel. Um, so these are the things. This uh, province of Macedonia includes some cities you probably know, Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. This, uh, this uh, passage we're going to read begins with a reference backwards to what we dealt with last week. And so let's start with verse 1. We'll read through the rest of the chapter, and I'll uh, point out what I meant by that. All right. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember, which is a a way of saying we pray for you when we think of you. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For we welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering. You welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell... How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Does God still save people today? Does he still get a hold of hearts and rip them from the grip of sin and bring them into true freedom? Is he still touching lives? Is he still impacting people? Or have we gotten so far away from the, the gospel message and so far away from the power that that can't happen anymore? And I would suggest to you that there is power in the gospel that we believe. There's power in the gospel we proclaim. So if you're 
a person who is believing in the gospel, there is power in the gospel to change us. And there's power in the gospel to change other people. So we need to understand that so that we can be faithful witnesses to what God has called us to do. It's so important that we understand that where some of us uh, who are going on this mission trip, um, there may be possibilities that go beyond the building of a church that we can, we can reach out and impact lives through the message of the gospel. But, but even before that happens, there's opportunity every day before us. How many know that there is a lot of people without hope in our city? There are. There's people that you know in your family and distant connections that don't live here, but you have access to through communication networks to be able to talk to them about the things of God. And, and we need the gospel. We need the gospel. We who are believers need, need the gospel. You know, we don't put that away and, and forget about it once we come to faith. We, we still need the power of the gospel alive and work in, work in us. And we need to share that with other people because it's the hope that's needed in our world. I'd like you to notice something that Paul says. This is what refers back. Look in verse 4 with me. If you have uh, the NIV here, it says, For, for we know, and uh, some of the other translations say something similar. But this, this points back to us to verse 2, where Paul is always thanking God for them. And now this always thanking God extends to, for we know some things. We thank God. We continue to thank God. We continue to pray for you because... We know some things that are true about you because of the way the gospel came. And so he mentions that we are, we are thankful for you. In these verses, Paul is rejoicing that the Thessalonians have responded to the gospel in an observable way. And I think this happens today, too, is that when, when people really come to faith in Christ, it's something worth rejoicing in. It's something to get excited about. When we have baptisms, that's an awesome testimony that somebody is going to follow God with their life and be a disciple. When somebody bows their knee before Jesus at the altar, what a time of rejoicing. Heaven is rejoicing. I wonder if you're in heaven's chorus in that moment or if we're skeptical. Come on, we can get a little skeptical, can't we? Like, we'll see if this really takes. <laughs> I hope you're not thinking that. I hope we're instead we're praying, God, Cause this to take deep root in their life. Cause the things that would steer people away from following you uh, to be uh, to be thwarted, so that they can really have success in following Christ. Well, in each of these phrases, Paul says some things here that uh, suggest that he's responding. They've responded to the gospel in an observable way. Notice he says, "Brothers and sisters," he says, "loved by God." And he has chosen you. Those are three phrases that point out some realities of things that Paul and his companions have observed. Okay, so they observed this, that this, this is, these things have taken place. And so they're ready to call them brothers and sisters. Okay, it's a, the Greek word is masculine. It, it says brothers there in plural. But the point is that these are brothers and sisters. Okay, they're in the family of God. And so he's referring to the fact that we recognize because of what God's doing in your life that you're part of the spiritual family. Do you understand that when we become Christians, we don't just become related to God the Father. We become related to his beloved people, the church. Uh, I don't, there's a few amens, but I, I thought I heard some groans out there. <laughs> oh, God, you're wonderful. Your people, not always so much. Uh, 
I know that that's just a feeling that I've heard others have in other states towards other churches. That's not happening here. But when you when you become a, a Christian and there's sincere work of God in your life, there is a brotherhood, a sisterhood. There's a, a sibling a siblingry. Is that the right word? I just coined a word. Write it down. It'll be in the next edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, there is a a membership in the family of God because of what God's done in our heart so that we become brothers and sisters. And one of the things that happens internally or should happen is that we have love for one another. First John is big about this, isn't, isn't it? The, the letter says there, if anyone says they love God but hate their brother, they lie. Because you can't hate the father, or excuse me, love the father and hate his children. It's just, uh, it just doesn't make sense in God's economy of things. We need to love one another. This is being part of a spiritual family when we turn to Christ. I'd like you to notice the second thing here. This is, uh, he qualifies um, brothers and sisters with this additional phrase that helps us understand a little bit more what the Christian life looks like. We are those who are loved by God. Okay? Now, we have to confess here today that God loves everybody. He does. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He even loves sinners. He loved us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? So he loves us. He loves all people. But here is a special familial kind of love that God has for those who've turned to him. That we are recipients of God's love. And perhaps this means more than just... Um, knowing that God loves you as an objective fact, but now this is the receiving of God's love, that we've responded to it. You understand what I mean by that? That, that having him having loved us for the unbeliever who holds him at bay, it does them no good for God to love them in a, an eternal sense. I think, I think God still shows kindness to the believer and unbeliever. Do you believe that? Remember, it says, Jesus says, he causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. And that's a good thing, right? When we're in Alaska, I just know when the sun comes out, everybody feels like they are God's favorite. (laughs) What about he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust? You know, we see it like, oh, it's raining again. Some people don't. I know Miss Lydia here, she loves it when it rains. And and I, I don't mind it when it rains. But some, you just feel like God is mad at you. Why is he causing it to rain again? But do you know if you were living in Israel in Jesus' day when he's saying these, that probably would have been the bigger expression of love because rain was something many times that was rare and hard to come by, and it was needed for crops. Like us, if it rains, doesn't rain, we're still going to go to the grocery store. But for them, that's their livelihood. And so God causing the rain to fall on the just and the unjust means that he pours forth blessing on both those who are good and those who don't follow him. So he loves both. But but here, when we understand that we're recipients of his love, we've responded to it in Jesus. God loved us in Jesus. And some people are saying, but I don't want I don't want the Jesus part. Well, that's God's ultimate love expressed. Are you with me? And so to welcome Jesus, to put our faith in Jesus, to trust in Jesus is to receive his love, to be the loved of the Father, okay? So he set his affections upon us. He's done something practical about it. It's not an idea. It's not a feeling for him. Maybe it is those things, but it's beyond that. 
It's an action. By sending Jesus, he demonstrates his love to us. Okay, so part of the spiritual family, recipients of God's fatherly love. Paul acknowledges these things when he's talking about the Thessalonians. They're true of us. If you're trusting in Christ, you're part of the spiritual family. You're loved by God. And then he says, uh, you're part of the chosen people. He doesn't quite say it that way, but but look at what it says here and see if we can't make some sense out of this. He says um, in verse 4 here, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you. He's chosen you. Chosen has a special connotation that sometimes we have disconnected theologically and said, well, this is what it means. And we've we've disconnected it from the, its Old Testament usage. Who is God's chosen people in the Old Testament? It's Israel, right? Okay. And in the New Testament, in First Peter chapter two, verse nine, it says, "You, the church, some Jews, some Gentiles, gathered together under the banner of Christ, are a chosen people. We're chosen. Okay. So we're part of God's chosen people. Now, I want to tell you, I don't personally believe in unconditional election of individuals. In other words, that God chooses you and you don't have anything to say about it." I don't believe I don't believe that. Maybe that doesn't make me a good Calvinist, but I never claim to be a Calvinist at all. But um, I think I think God chooses a people in Christ. That Jesus is the elect, and if you're in Christ, you're part of the elect people of God. Okay, so He's the chosen one. And this could be a long, complicated discussion suited more for a Bible study. But what I'm comfortable saying this morning that I I believe I know from Scripture is these seven things quickly. Number one is that I believe that God sent Christ to die for all people. Okay, God sent Christ to die for all people. In 1 John 2, 2, it says that Christ died for the sins, for our sins, and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Okay, so he's died for all people. Second is that God desires all people to come to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his, his desire, his want. And then third is that God made a way for all people to become his people, should they want to. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 through 20, it says something like this, that those though you were far off, God brought you near through the blood of Christ. He's He's made out of the two people, Jew and Gentile, one new people by breaking down the middle wall, the middle wall of partition, the middle barrier that stood between us. He's caused us to be a people of God, his people, not just a people, but his, his people. And then the fourth thing is that God knows in advance those who will choose and reject him which I don't think is the same thing as determining, but that's something to talk about later. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse uh, 2.19, God knows those who are his. So God knows in advance, I think through his foreknowledge, he knows in advance those who will choose and those who reject. I don't think it's the same thing as him determining who will choose and who will reject. The fifth thing is that God saves whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Do you believe that's true? Okay. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? So that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then John chapter 6, verse 44, I think shows us that God gives his, gives his help to choose him. Uh, John, there in John 6, Jesus says, no one can come ex- to me except that he's drawn. Okay, so this is God's, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. This is the Father's will. He wants to draw people to himself. 
Vincent prayed it this morning. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. There's something, there's something drawing about the crucifixion. There's something drawing about the work of the Holy Spirit convicting of sin and of righteousness in the world. And then the seventh thing is that God calls chosen those who put their faith in Christ. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. And so when we say we're chosen, we need to understand that it's God's desire to have a people. And if we're part of that people, we're part of his chosen people. And I don't know about you, but many times when I was growing up, I didn't get picked first to be on the team. Anybody else? Okay. Go down the line. There's a really pathetic story I'll have to tell you sometime one-on-one if you remember to ask me about it. But, uh, the thing that is wonderful is getting chosen, getting picked. And God has chosen us. He loves us. He loved us despite our unworthiness, and he's called us to himself, and he cares about the details of our lives. And he likes your idiosyncrasies as long as they're not sinful. Are you with me? That you are a unique individual. He loves you for who you are, and he loves you for who he's created you to be even more. Okay, because what he sees in you is not just who you are, just like Abraham. Remember, he was called Abram, but what God saw was Abraham, the father of many nations. So he sees us in light of who we could be in him, and he loves that about us. So Paul says, we know and we rejoice because you've been chosen by God. You're part of the family. You're loved by God. And what God knows uh, because he sees the heart, Paul and his companions know because they see the evidence. And so in looking at this, I'd like to point out the way that the gospel comes. Look at the way that the gospel comes, and this is going to be in verses uh, 6 and following. The way that the gospel comes here is, says, because our gospel came to you, that's verse 5 actually, not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Let's talk about how the gospel comes to us. This is a really important point. If you ever want to witness, if you and even if you don't want to witness because you're afraid, it's good to know this because we need to know that there is power for people to receive Christ that is not earthly power. There's power in it that's beyond our personality and charisma. Do you know that? You don't have to be the most winsome person. I mean, I think we should try to be nice, don't you? And I think we should trust God, and I think we should pray for his help. But people aren't saved because of you. They're saved because of Jesus. But we give opportunity. We go give opportunity for that to happen. The effectiveness of the gospel changes lives. And when you look at how the gospel came, there are some very ordinary things about it. And I want you to know that because I think that we imagine something else when the message is delivered, that we do have to be some kind of a winsome person or we have to be some kind of super powerhouse. I think we should obviously strive to be full of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes people, um, they hijack or sabotage their own witness by thinking too much about themselves. Are you with me on that? How, what kind of witness am I? Obviously, we need to have a life that's not contradictory or hypocritical. But the saving power comes from Jesus in the message. The, there's power in the message. Look at what it says. What we can, we can know about the gospel is that it was brought by Paul and his companions to Thessalonica. Look at Acts chapter 17. Well, don't look there. You can look there, but um, 
I don't want you to have to turn out of where we're at. Acts 17, 2 through 3, you can write this down. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, okay, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So did you hear that? What it sounds like is a lot like a Bible study. He reasoned, he explained, he proved. He reasoned, he explained, he proved. That sounds very cerebral, doesn't it? Oh, man, how can anybody get saved out of that? Well, it's not just from the origin of pure intellect, but what Paul is doing is pointing back to the Word of God that describes who Jesus is and what he would do, that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had to die and rise from the dead. And so on the surface of this, it might not seem very dynamic. It sounds, it sounds like a Bible study. Uh, but the Holy Spirit works beneath the surface to bring the gospel home. Are, are you with me on that? That while you're talking about Jesus, the Holy Spirit is talking in the heart language about Jesus simultaneously. And he can cause that message to get to the very heart of things. Remember in Philippi, uh, when it talks about Lydia receiving the gospel, the literal uh, Greek there is she was pierced to the heart. God opened her heart. God pierced open her heart with the gospel. It got in beyond all the barriers that we would put up. Isn't that wonderful? That he can do that as we share with words. So notice some things here that God is working behind the, the scenes in this. But notice what it says first. It says, not simply with words, and then it says, also with power, and then it says, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Not only with words means this, that words are necessary, but it's not only words. Are you with me? It, you, can't, you can't preach the gospel by going and smiling at people. That would be nice, wouldn't it? You didn't have to say a thing. You couldn't mess that up. We just would go and smile at people, and they would get saved. Well, it's going to take something else um, if, if the typical way of doing this happens, and that is that there needs to be words used. But it's not only with words, but words are necessary for conversation and growth. You see, conversa- uh, conversion, excuse me, conversion and growth. Conversion is not a warm feeling in our hearts, but a thoughtful decision. And Christian growth is the same way. It takes words. Preaching is the method. Jesus, uh, Paul said, uh, that it's through the foolishness of preaching that he's made the mystery known. Through the foolishness of preaching that the mystery has been made known. And so uh, you can see this also in the day of Pentecost where it seems that there was a double miracle performed where the phrases, the praises of God were spoken and they were heard in all the languages that were necessary to, to, to receive and to hear. And so God wanted them to not only have a feeling and have a conversion experience, but he wanted to engage them at the level of their, this sounds so psychological, but their consciousness. He wants to know us personally. He wants to engage us in area of our will. Not just, I'm going to save you and it's going to slip by you like you're not going to notice it happening. I want to ask you if you want to be part of the kingdom. I want to invite you to say yes to me as, as Lord and Savior and put your faith in me. And that seems a little unspiritual because uh, oftentimes the way that I don't think anybody said this, but the way I thought it happened growing up in church was that God was just going to get near us and he was just going to swipe past us and somehow we're going to be changed. 
and hopefully there wouldn't have to be preaching. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You hear it a lot when I was growing up. It was such a good service. We didn't even have preaching. <laughs> is, that, is that really a good service? I mean, maybe don't answer because that will break my heart. It will break my heart. But the point was that when, when God uh, worked and he moved, it was accompanied by a word. Something was said that went along with that explanation a call to commitment, some kind of instruction for what to do next. Elijah wasn't just moved with impressions, but God gave him instructions about where to go from there. And You can see this again and again. You can see it in the uh, rebuke that Paul gives to the Corinthian church for their excess of tongues. His problem wasn't that they spoke in tongues too much. The problem is that they wanted to make that the only thing. The problem is that they wanted to try to make that this spiritual demonstration. Look, we all spoke in tongues. Yes, but nobody was edified because nobody could understand what anybody else was saying. So there needed to be something that engaged the intellect and the mind to draw people into that. Paul is not ashamed of tongues, and we shouldn't be either. It is strange. I'll admit that. It's a strange phenomenon. But the point of it is, is that unless it's interpreted, it doesn't benefit anybody else except you, the speaker. So we need that. We need to understand why. Because those kind of things don't change hearts. What changes heart are ideas communicated through the Spirit with words. Come on, that's true. So it's really important that those things were communicated. And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. And here's the other thing is, uh, well, I'll come to that more in just a moment, but um, it's not only with words. It means that words are necessary, but there needs to be something else in addition to just words. Words need to be accompanied with power. Okay, Listen, the message itself is power. Okay, The gospel itself is power. Even if a person is talking about it on the bus... And they're saying, this is what I heard a preacher say. Somebody else could be listening. The person talking about it may not believe at all. But they could be talking about what Jesus did, what they heard some preacher describing. Somebody else could be eavesdropping and put their faith in Jesus because the power is still in the message. Believe that? I do. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. So there's power in the message. The message is anointed. The message itself is anointed. It's not any one particular word. It's the words that describe the work of Jesus is anointed. Okay? I'm, I might feel like maybe I have trouble convincing you on this one, but think about this. When Jonah went to Nineveh, and this isn't the same as preaching the gospel, but this is preaching in the Old Testament. Do you think Jonah was excited do you think he was fired up? Do you think he was trying to pull out his best message for them? No. I think it was probably very monotone. It probably wasn't a message he was excited about. And maybe he didn't do his very best. And yet, the whole town put on sackcloth and ashes and repented before God. Why? Because there's power in the message. It's not in the messenger so much. First, it's in the message. Okay? There is power in the messenger. I think when those two things are in sync, gr- really powerful things can happen. But there's already power in the gospel. 
And so you can share the gospel and see lives touch and change. The other example of that is where Paul says um, that he's got several people around him that are enemies. Philippians chapter, I think it's one, where he says several people uh, have hoped to add affliction to my bonds. And they preach Christ out of contention and rivalry, not out of sincerity. And he says, but nevertheless, I rejoice because Christ is preached. Are you telling me somebody could preach with the wrong kinds of motives and others still get saved? Yeah, I am, because there's power in the gospel. There's power in the message. It's a powerful message that we have. It's life-changing. Ideas have consequences. If you don't believe it, look at what Marx did. I mean, he's flipped the world upside down with his thinking and his ideas for evil. Okay? Think about the... The ideas of fascist regimes on the other side, they have ideas, and those things were devastating in the 20th century. How much more powerful, and I hope you understand that bigger than all of the other movements put together, Christ has saved hearts and lives throughout history because ideas were proclaimed in the language of the people, and they heard it, and they received it, and they responded in faith. So words have power, but it's not only with words, it's words with power. And uh, so I would suggest to you that these words have power. Think about all the alternatives that are out there today, because there's a lot of words being spoken, more than, more than just right here. Lots of places there are words being spoken. What I hope you know is that the gospel has power in it, and the gospel is different from a lot of words that are out there. There's a lot of people talking. Um, you can watch TED Talks, which, were, which are informative. Um, I don't know if you do that, and that's fine. I'm not putting those down. Um, comedians are entertaining. They talk about things. You can get a laugh and pass some time. Podcasts are interesting. Uh, pundits are passionate. And so in each of these, you have different people saying a lot of different things. But nothing has the power like the gospel. Okay? But he goes on to say, with the Holy Spirit... Okay, the gospel message was received not only with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us to know that we're not alone in this. God not only anoints the message, but he anoints the messenger as well. He can, he can pour his spirit out upon us so that we have boldness and so that we're not just saying a timeless truth, but we can also at times say a very timely truth. Okay, do you, you understand what I mean by that? The gospel is timeless. You can share it in the same form in different places around the world, and people would turn to Christ, okay? But sometimes there are moments when a person needs to hear something specific, that God is saving you, and he's going to deliver you from this. Do you understand what I mean? Uh, There are very specific and timely words that may just cause things to click, and if you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, he can apply the gospel in that way, in the, the direct way that person needs to hear it. And so with the Holy Spirit suggests the Holy Spirit is at the same time speaking to the hearts of others and also guiding the way that we uh, communicate this message. In addition to that, I would suggest that he also confirms the message with miraculous signs when he sees that necessary. He may give uh, us some kind of way, like you're, you're preaching to somebody, and, and Jesus did this, as a matter of fact. He just said to this guy, your sins are forgiven take up your mat and walk. And they're like, what do those two things have to do with each other? One confirmed the other. Okay, The healing of that man confirmed the forgiveness of that man. 
And so somebody needed to see the sight in order to understand that there's a spiritual thing that's happening here from the authority of this man, Jesus. And so those two things can go together. And so I would suggest to you that let's not relegate miracles to the past. This is part of our proclamation of the gospel. The, the word came with the help of the Holy Spirit to guide, and he can give boldness and passion that enhances the believability of the message to the hearers. But he also can give it with, he can give deep conviction. This uh, refers to the working of God in both messenger and hearer, that he, deep conviction is confirming of truth. It's the, the confirmation of truth. It has to do with, with that, that this is true, and not only is there an, uh, an external sense because you hear the facts, but also the internal conviction that God is working on the inside of people. And so it's internal and it's external. It's, it's emotional at times and psychological, and it's also uh, practical and spiritual and experiential. There's a true transformation for those who put their confidence in Christ. And if you take a moment here and you look around, I want you to know you're not the only one that Christ has saved. And this isn't it. There's a, there's a verse, I think it's in Daniel, and this is from the NASB from my college days. I remember it because I didn't understand the word at the time. But it said, I looked around the throne, the throne of the Ancient of Days, and I saw myriads and myriads, thousands times thousands, from every tongue and tribe and nation gathered around the throne worshiping. So the gospel must have an effect if that vision is coming true. And we've already seen it. We've seen it. We've seen it happen in the world. We see it happen in, in our lives. We've seen it happen in the lives of people who are near us, the gospel coming with deep conviction. I'd like you to notice the way the gospel's received. I plan to go quick on this, so hold on tight. Verse 5, why does verse 5 talk about Paul's ministry among them? Look at verse 5 with me. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and deep conviction. Um, you know how we lived among you for your sake. That sounds like a strange thing to say. But the weight of the salvation in this doesn't rest upon Paul's example. As we mentioned a moment ago, the message has power in itself. But the reason he's pointing it out is that when Paul was preaching among them, he was preaching and living the Christian life in the midst of persecution. Okay? And some people don't want to do that. If you're a pretender to the faith, persecution will expose you. You understand what I mean? That if we're not legitimate, if we're not authentic in our faith, time gets, uh, times, times get tough enough, we're jumping ship. Because we don't want to put up with that for something that we don't really believe in. Okay? So Paul is saying, I do believe in this. I really believe in this, and you've seen it in my life. And the example that you followed is that you've done the same thing, and that convinces me that you're truly trusting in him. I think Paul is saying here that faith follows Christ even when it's hard, and you saw it was true in us, and we've seen that it's true in you as well. And so I want to point this out, that there is no easy way in life, okay? Uh, that's really bleak, isn't it? <laughs> There's not an easy way. Okay, so you say, well, it's hard to follow Jesus because the world isn't going that way. Okay, it's true. But have you thought about this? The Bible says the way of the sinner is hard. Anybody been down that road? And you found out it is not easy living that way. Okay, so choose your hardship. There's trade-offs. 
When you think about it, you can't push off inevitably, inevitably the decision to follow Jesus. It will always ultimately catch up with you. Are you going to follow him or do something else? You can't avoid that forever. So when it comes to this, there are trade-offs. You can live for yourself and you can go along with the world and go to its destruction. Verse 10 says that, that we believe in Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. There is a coming wrath, so this isn't going to go on unconditionally forever without change. There's a day of account that's coming. Are you aware of that? If we're not, let's be aware of that, because if we know that, then it can give us a little more steam in following Christ through difficulty now, that there is a day of wrath coming. Okay. So I want to point that out here. Um, verse 10 mentions that. Or you can live for God in resisting the world and face some difficulty now, but be rewarded later. Who do you want to be for you, and who do you want to be against you? Do you want God on your side or the world on your side? Okay, so it's not easy because we're in the middle of a spiritual battle, and you have to take up sides. The spiritual battle, you may say, well, I'm not choosing sides. Then your side is chosen for you. Right? I'm preaching to the choir here, so I, I hope. But I, I wanted to mention that we, we can't push this off forever. We have to make a decision. Jesus said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can gain the whole world, but you'll lose your own soul. This is the devil's bargain. You give me yourself, and I'll give you the world. Who has the world? Whoever has the self, right? And so if you've gained the whole world, but Satan has your soul, Satan's got it all. Here's the interesting thing is this is a perversion of God's bargain because God's bargain is really real. It's that you give me all of yourself and I'll give you what's in me along with everything else. That's God's bargain. So now it comes down to both are making a similar bargain. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the devil or are you going to trust the Lord? Verses 5 and 6 shows us that these decisions come in the midst of years. Okay, In the midst of years is another way of saying that People meet Jesus on Mondays. Like when just ordinary stuff of life is happening, the tire's flat, the kids are screaming in the back seat, Got you just spilled your milkshake. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody have tough days like that where it seems like you just got a bad call? And it seems like God can come in moments like that and interrupt life and give us a new direction. When is it convenient ever to start a new allegiance? There's never a, a convenient time. But when Christ comes in powerful ways, when the message comes like this, we need to respond to him in that moment. And here's the other thing we ought to know, and you can see this down here. Um, it says that, I'm looking at verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. Hard times don't don't have to mean joyless living. Are you with me on that? Isn't there a joy that can transcend all of that, a joy that goes beyond our understanding? Notice a became here. You became. Uh, you can see this in verse 6, you became imitators of us. Verse 7, so you became a model and then if you follow down, at least in the NIV here, it talks about uh, becoming. Your faith in God has become 
known everywhere. Notice that, that there's this, this change that's taking place. To become or to be becoming is a transformation that's happening. And so he describes this. In verse 6, he says, You became imitators of us, holding to the truth despite difficulty. You became imitators. What's the Christian life look like? Is it everybody's out there on their own, a maverick in faith, or is there some other way? Why does God put us in spiritual families? Well, discipleship requires, expects, that we become imitators of those good qualities in others. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, that I'm going to be an example for you to follow. Notice in verse 7 that you became models, imitators, models. What do what do imitators look to? They look to models, don't they? So do you see a progression here? Going from imitators to models. That you go from the one who is following to the one who is leading. And this is always the progression. You can't be a leader until you're a follower first. So models, verse 7. To all believers, it sounds a little bit strange because it literally says here, you, plural, became a model, singular. So this is talking about the corporate effect. As a church, you've become a model to believers everywhere. And then verse 8, uh, it doesn't say this word, but it, it's there in principle. Uh, you became witnesses. And the, the way it says is the word of the Lord rang out from you, and your faith became known everywhere. And the rang out and known everywhere is a Greek word that means it circulated. It circulated like a newspaper, like news flash to everybody. It's out there. The word is out there. You believe, and it's made a difference. First receiving, then imitating, then modeling, and then witnessing. Verse 9 and 10, notice what reception that they had when they understood what the gospel meant. It meant a new allegiance, a new Savior, and a new hope. They turned to God from idols. Let me take just a couple minutes here. We'll try to wrap up before the end of the hour here, just 10 minutes out. Um, turn to God from idols. Okay, this is, this is a change of allegiance. This seems like such a little thing to us. Like, they're going to stop worshiping that statue and they're going to start worshiping the real God. Who wouldn't do that? Well, you might not do that if everything you knew was related to that statue bringing you good luck. Okay, everything that you believed, everything that everybody around you believed, that it meant by following Christ that you were saying that they were all wrong. Do you understand what I mean? Or if in choosing to follow the true and living God and turning away from idols, you said to your whole city that I'm really not a citizen of this city anymore because you guys follow the wrong kinds of gods, and I'm not going to the parades, and I'm not support. Do you know that in Augustine's time, he wrote a book called The City of God, and one of the reasons he wrote it was because there were a lot of people that thought the sack of Rome was a result of Christianity converting so many people that people weren't worshiping the gods anymore. And so the gods let Rome be sacked by the vandals because so many people had become Christians. Not interesting? And so he wrote The City of God in response to that. And so if you fo- it's more complicated than turning away from an object to the true and living God at least in the practice of it. Now, in reality, that's exactly what we're doing. We're turning away from that which is false to that which is real. Okay, And that's true in our lives as well. Um, Larry Hurtado, who uh, he wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods, I've mentioned before, he said that the word for idol in the Greek is normally 
uh, used to suggest something that's a mere phantom. You would never find somebody in there worshiping at their shrine, calling their God an idol. You would never hear that because they didn't see it that way. They saw them as real and living things. But when Paul uses the word idol and other um, speakers use the word idol, it's derisive against that thing. It's saying that it's a mere phantom, okay? That um, it suggests something that is a mere phantom. Uh, and phantom means it's an appearance or an illusion without material substance. Do you hear that? A phantom or illusion without any material substance to it, a mirage or an optical illusion that you can look at it, but there's not a God that stands behind that. Are, are you with me? Okay, so if you think about it, there's an irony here. Because the one thing an idol is, is a material representation. It's something tangible you can touch. And so you can see it with your eyes. But what Paul is saying is that's an illusion. There's nothing that stands behind it of reality. It's a piece of block. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of fancy metal. Shaped to look like something by our own hands. But it has no meaning. It has no purpose. It has nothing real that stands behind it. On the other side of things, the God who will not allow us to build images related to him is the real God. Okay, are you seeing that? You can't see him with your eyes, but he's the real thing. He's the real thing. And maybe one of the prohibitions on idolatry is for this. I thought about this one time before, but and I'm not sure exactly how to apply this or understand this, but uh, it seems to me one of the prohibitions against idolatry is to make way for the one real material representation of God who is Jesus himself, God in flesh. I don't want any idols getting in the way of his glory. Remember Paul, or John said, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Okay, So they worshipped idols. They turned away from that. They turned to the living God. This is a change of allegiance. It had effects personally, culturally, uh, in their families and economically, they turned away from idols to serve the true and the living God. I think of the images that we have today that are out there. There's pornographic images. They promise sensuality or the feeling of it. There's uh, video games. I'm not suggesting these are on the same level, obviously, but um, I would warn you against the idea that video games can provide an alternate reality in which we can live without real consequence or effect. And there's a, there can be a danger in that. If we're, we're not careful, it gets carried away. It's promised accomplishment where there is no reality. And movies and television can do the same thing. We can live vicariously through somebody else's story and not really live ourselves. And the image makers, they're craftsmen of another reality, and that's just what idolaters did is they crafted an image that people could worship and give their allegiance to. The Bible says they turn from those images, not those in particular, but images, idols to serve the living and the true God. And they turn to him to wait for Jesus, his son from heaven, his son raised from the dead, his son who rescues us from the coming wrath. And this is an important theme in Thessalonians we'll come to later on, but there is wrath that's coming. God is not hateful. You understand the difference? Wrath. I saw this one time. I was asked to go see somebody who was appearing in court. And one of the things I saw was the judge sitting there dispassionate. You know that word? Like there wasn't emotion in it. It was very 
it was very calm and very collected. And they were talking about the consequences of this particular crime as if they were talking about the ingredients of a sandwich. Are you, do you understand what I'm trying to say here? There wasn't animosity between that judge and whoever was standing there. They weren't hateful towards them. They were respectful. But this is the crime, and this is the punishment. And I'm not suggesting you God doesn't feel when we sin. He does. But I'm saying that his justice comes in such a way that it is pure justice and not hatred. Does that make sense? But it is coming. And if we sin against him, we can expect it whether we feel it or not. Some men's sins uh, come before them and some follow after. Have you ever read that? There are sins that are met in the moment with judgment, and there are other sins that it looks like somebody's getting away with them for a really long time, and then they meet it at the end. Which one's scarier? I think it's getting met at the end with the consequences of sin. But there is wrath that's coming, and that's why these folks and we need to respond to the message of the gospel, turn with all of our hearts to Jesus, and trust in him. He rescues us from the coming wrath. How does he do that? By this, the wrath of God was already poured out upon Jesus for our sins. Do you know that? So now, having accepted his punishment on our behalf, our wrath has already been satisfied. The wrath that due to us has been satisfied in Christ. So we're forgiven. So the only ones who don't receive the, the benefit of that are those that haven't, haven't been grafted into Jesus, haven't said yes to Jesus, haven't come into Jesus. And therefore, they have to bear their own wrath, which is a tragedy because, as we read, he paid for the sins of the whole world. Everybody could be a recipient of this. All right. Let me mention two things here. Why don't we stand and we'll respond to this. First of all, the gospel is powerful to change circumstances, and that's true whether you're a sharer of the gospel, the one telling it, or the one receiving it. Today, if you're the one who needs to receive the gospel, let me suggest to you, hear it. Hear the call of Jesus to come to him. Turn to him with all of your heart in faith and go his way. Trust him, obey him, walk with him, but most of all, have faith that he has covered your sins and that you can be right with God today. If you pray simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or some other prayer that recognizes our own fallenness and our need for him. He died and he rose again. He is the Savior who will come and he will bring justice with him. We want to be on his side. Choose him today. Second, maybe you're a a sharer of the gospel and you've accepted Christ and he's living in your life and you're desiring to walk with him. I want you to know that the gospel is powerful to change hearts and lives. If you've been witnessing to your family Don't stop witnessing and don't stop praying. Trust that that gospel can take root and transform them. But notice in each of these, there's something to do. If you're a receiver of the gospel, we have to accept Christ and we have to trust him and obey him. If you're a sharer of the gospel, we need to step up and we need to speak up and share with other people the truth of it. If you're a parent, your first priority, I think, share the gospel with your kids. Make sure they know who Jesus is. That's the most important thing you can pass on to them. Not every child chooses to follow, but they need to know. 
and you never know at what moment in life someone may turn uh, to Jesus, turn to the, the teachings of their Sunday school teacher, their mom from years ago. You never know because the gospel is powerful that way. It stays with us. I've met adults who are up in years. Their parents shared the gospel with them. They're not yet believing, but they know it, and it's, it's hanging on to them. It's as if it can't get away. Continue to share. Amen. Father, thank you for the power that there is in the gospel. It's not just a power of words, but it's the power of your accompanying spirit with deep conviction and help. Today, if there are those that are here that haven't yet turned to you, God, would you help them with that holy nudge to to turn to you with all of their heart and receive you as Lord and Savior? God, we want to see response take place. We want to see people come in and be transformed, brought into the family of God, called beloved by the Father, chosen by you. Would you do it again, Lord, we pray. Today, I I pray, Lord, there are some who are discouraged witnesses here. Help us to be encouraged that this message has power, that you accompany by your Holy Spirit. Help us to be willing to step out. Would you give us that holy nudge that, encourages us, even in uncomfortable situations, to speak up and to share what you're calling us to say, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's go today with three things in mind. One, the gospel is telling what Jesus did, who Jesus is, and what we should do about it. And uh, I think that's what we need to do is proclaim that, because he's worthy of it. Amen. And part of what we need to do is, if we have any idols in our life, we need to lay those down and go full bore after him. You know what full bore is? That's, uh, I think that's an old racing term for when you just, you put the pedal to the metal. Okay? Sorry to use another metaphor. Drive fast towards Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.